the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, Dan Fitzgerald is my name and thanks a lot for joining me for the Country Hour this Monday lunchtime. While an important commercial barramundi and mud crab fishing area will remain off limits for fish shows following negotiations between the NT government and traditional owners. Those operators that can't fish anywhere else, uh, you know, the areas that are left within the region uh, are not enough for a viable fishing operation, so um, they are severely impacted. Yeah, we are talking about one of the closest fishing grounds for commercial fishermen to Darwin. Tell you more about that soon. We'll also catch up with the NT Farmers representative who is over in Europe taking a look around France with a group of ag bodies from Australia. What are they up to there? We'll be crossing to France on the country out today. And we will pay tribute to Ian Quinn, a mango farmer from Acacia Hills who has passed away at the age of 77 and is being farewelled in Darwin today. The farmer at his core, but he was a man that always had a pretty big vision whenever he looked at any project that he was thinking about tackling. You know, he'd scratch back a bit of dirt and he could already see 10,000, 100,000 mango trees reaching to the horizon. Yeah, all those stories and much more on the Country Hour today. First up today, as we go to air this afternoon, stations along the Georgina River, which is right on the NT Queensland border just south of the Barclay Highway, are inundated with floodwaters. These floodwaters, they've been moving slowly through the Barclay region over the last few days. And from what we know this afternoon, homesteads at Austral Downs and Lake Nash stations have both have water through them. We haven't been able to get onto anyone at those proper properties, understandably, uh, they've got their hands full at the moment. Uh, ben Olszewski, he lives at the community of Apalurum, which is on Lake Nash Station, just a few k's down from the homestead there at the cattle property. Uh, he has been out flying his drone over the last few days and he's captured some pretty amazing footage. It shows floodwaters that are just kilometres wide over this flat ground. And yes, it shows uh, water all around the station complex there at Lake Nash. Uh, he says the community at Arpalurum, it is safe, uh, but the, sa- the station has been hard hit. At a guess, I would say the communities at, at current levels, and I think we might have peaked, the river might have peaked, is probably the best part of three and a half metres above the, the high water mark. So the community is absent, and I think the closest water is is um, several kilometres from the from the community. So it's not lapping at the door or anything like that either. How's everyone feeling at the moment? As you said, you know the flooding hasn't reached you quite yet, but Lake Nash, the station nearby, has been affected. Are, are people concerned in the community? They have been, yeah. They're very concerned about the station. There's a there's a very long, very very long history between the community and the and the station and uh, a lot of the people were born in and around the homestead from here so there's you know they're seeing it's a, a tragedy their neighbors the station is uh, and the community's got a, a very good relationship um a long good relationship yeah the community's sort of well especially the older ones just really heartbroken about what's what's happened to the to the homestead um the oldies have were freaking out quite a bit about well if you don't know how it's going to happen you know you just got um 
God, it's got to be concerned. But some of the photos and, and uh, the footage of just showing the, the, the contrast or in the context of where the, the river is compared to the communities sort of help that out. So I would say the, the current status is people are just, it's, it's a really mixed mixed bag. People are just amazed at, at what it all looks like. It's just, it's bigger than anything in our lifetime. And Ben, yeah. you've been flying your drone over Lake Nash and around the region. For people who haven't seen your photos, can you describe what you've actually seen, what you've captured? Just basically the the the, the homestead. I mean, the, the photos are, are pretty pretty widespread now. I think the homestead's actually been been inundated. So this is, as I said, it's the first time in a, a very long time. So you've currently got essentially the entire footprint of the of the station. You know, is, is basically covered in water. Couldn't tell you the extent of the, the the water in buildings or anything else like that. You'll have to that's the station. But yeah, it's devastating. It's just it's just catastrophic. You know, it's not just a, a place of work. It's a it's a home for people. And it's it's an iconic it's an iconic place as well. So you're obviously not based at the station, Ben. But I imagine you have a bit of a personal relationship with some of the people living there. Have you been able to get on to anybody at Lake Nash? Yeah, yeah, a bit. Um, but they've obviously got their hands full at the moment. So we're just trying to just offer help and but just give them as much space as they need as well. It's um, difficult enough to sort of deal with a whole bunch of unexpected and unprecedented sort of stuff for them. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to, to sort of catch up. But at this stage, as far as I'm aware, everybody's safe. And um, we'll just have to wait for the water to come down to see what, what the damage is. Has anybody from the station been evacuated to Alpurin? Have you been involved in that? What do you know about the status of people at the station right now? Uh, I, d- I don't know all the status of everybody, but I know they're all safe. The station is, is highly professional. They operate a, um, a fairly complex array of just stock camps and, and so on. They're used to camping. They're used to mobilisation. Um, there's been no panic that I'm aware of. There's been no, you know, there's just, you know, devastation. So I think they've, um, I'm not sure where everybody is, but I, I know some have relocated to other locations on the station. There's a camp that's been set up further away so where they've um, relocated a lot of their gear to to just keep it out of the out of the water, they were able to get a lot of gear out. The rest of everybody, I think, is is um, is safe. Do you know anything about stock losses just from being able to chuck your drone up? Have you captured? No, none, no, none here. Uh, what you've got to remember is is that down this this end, we, well, despite the fact that the river's sort of spread out, giving them a chance to um, stock to to move away. So I think. People are across making sure they can get out of um, pastures and stuff. But again, it's it's sort of I'm not aware of any of that here. Certainly, plenty of plenty of that further up at uh, Austral and and Avon and stuff, and and further up, you know, past Camelwheel. It's it's just there's just no chance to to save cattle when there's just that much that much water coming down. And obviously, the roads to Camelwheel may be cut for some weeks. Are you concerned about, <laughs> well, some time? <laughs> we don't know, That's do we? Well, are you concerned about food or supplies coming into the community at all? Is that on your mind? Yeah, well, it is. It's a big deal. The community, big shout out to the station, to the um, actual storekeepers here in the in the community. Evan and Christy are doing an absolutely sensational job. So. Um, they've just been getting on with it. They had huge stores of food before the wet. They usually stock up really, really well. And um, and uh, but you know eventually things start running out, and they're currently paying for and flying in um, you know as many supplies as they can get planes on. We're we're a bit limited with uh, size of the planes that are available. In other words, the amount of cargo that can actually come in. So it's yeah, it's definitely an issue. So there's been some appeals for help to the uh, um, to the authorities. 
I'm not sure where that is. Again, that's not my department, but um, definitely will get it get to be an issue. I'd, I'd say it's going to be well, definitely many weeks before um, before we can get anything in and out by road. That's for sure. Ben Olshuski, he lives at Arpalurum Community. He was speaking there to Victoria Pengeli about flooding at Lake Nash Station. It's right on the NT Queensland border. Um, yeah, some vision, drone vision I've seen that Ben took um, shows, yeah, waters kilometres wide and some of it going through the Homestead complex there at Lake Nash. Uh, I have also seen photos online of water through Austral Downs as buildings too. Uh, that property is run by AACO. Uh, we understand uh, that that property, it's actually run from next door Avon Downs and all the people there on the property are happy and safe. It is 20 minutes to one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on ABC Radio right across the Territory. Now, over the border in Queensland's Gulf Country, the Gregory and Leichhardt rivers are both still in major flooding. The towns of Burketown, Doomagee, and Gregory have all been flooded. People were evacuated from those places over the weekend. We understand that cattle have also been trapped by floodwaters, and some are stranded on small patches of high country. It is too early at this stage to know the extent of those losses, but ABC Rural has been told they could potentially be quite high. Helicopter pilot Jack Clark, he's been in the air for the last few days doing food drops and evacuations in Burketown and surrounding country. Alice Marshall caught him while he was in the chopper flying to Gregory late yesterday evening. Uh, it's spread across probably a, uh, the one I've got to the worst of it. Um, it's probably there's an ocean from about 40k out of Burketown back to Burketown, obviously all the way out to the ocean. Out of front, in parts there, be 5k wide, 10k wide, spots probably more. Yeah, the biggest thing is the depth of the water. It's never, never been so deep in a lot of places. Been a lot of never happened. Been a lot of houses, been through a lot of houses, never been through before. Hundreds of years of being there, so. Yeah, and what are you seeing cattle-wise? Oh, catastrophic, catastrophic losses. Cattle swimming around up there for days on end here, so they, and you just can't get to them all. Um, yeah, the worst of it's where where thousands are trying to get on one little dam square or up into a turkey's nest, and they're just smothering each other, and yeah, they're dying all underneath. They're just a pile of cattle. And, yeah. Plenty of cattle flat rounds hung up and hung up in trees and that. There's, yeah, every day you go, there's more and more scattered everywhere. You look down, there's cattle hung up in trees dead. Many still swimming though. Yeah, there's still plenty swimming, mate. As well, it keeps changing. They but up this northern end of Burketown, especially on the eastern side of Burketown, it's, it's pretty bad, eh? They bloody is going to be in it for days and days and days. But, but it's the, it's the other one you can do something with at the moment. Um, they're getting pretty hungry, eh? Look, they start getting some hay and them, get something in their bellies. Yeah. Are you anticipating you'll be doing lots of feed drops over the next coming yeah. days? Yeah, mate, as the water recedes, yeah, it'll be just pulled us up today. We sort of couldn't put any out. The water's too deep to put any hay out, so did as much as we could, but um, yeah, you couldn't. You couldn't put it where it sort of needed to fill up their bellies and water a lot of Over the coming days, I guess, are you anticipating that that number of cattle lost is only going to get bigger? Oh, definitely, yeah. No, she's 
sort of it, you can't do much about because it's, yeah, they're just in the middle of an ocean. You can't park them anywhere. And now they've been in the water that long, they've sort of, uh, you can't move them. They don't look, at, look, don't look up at you. They don't want to move off you. They're starting to, start, the brain starts to sort of get a bit funny. Eh? They don't want to move off you. Yeah, they've sort of given up. Yeah, they, we tried to save horse, but they walked through the flood water and um, put a put a rope around his neck. And, yeah, he wouldn't lead, he wouldn't move, wouldn't he couldn't push him. Yeah, he just sat there. That is helicopter pilot Jack Clark of Diamond Helicopters speaking there to Alice Marshall. As I said, the ABC has been told it is a bit early to give estimates of stock losses here, either in the Northern Territory or in Queensland, um, but they could be quite significant. Sam Daniels, he runs cattle on a number of properties in the Gulf, including Escott Station, which is on the Nicholson and Gregory Rivers. Uh, That has been the hardest of his properties that's been hit. He says all his staff are safe, um, but he said he expects to have lost some cattle. Look, our cattle are struggling, but we've got helicopters out there now dropping some hay off. You know, there's, you know, we've we've GPSed in all the ones that need to be looked after, and we're getting hay to them. Um, you know, we're, we're, look, the losses we're going to have losses there and serious losses. But the mo- most important thing, mate, is that everyone's safe, and you know, we just get on with it. You know, as of tomorrow, there'll be um, uh, 14 people back at the station uh, between mechanics. Um, electricians and builders. Uh, we had about a you know, metre of water go through the place, but um, we'll just get back on, back into it and fix it up, mate. We'll have to fly everyone in and out until mm-hmm. um, we can get that sorted out. Uh, we'll base them at Nardoo and we'll just fly them in and out every day. Uh, I reckon it could be a month um, to six weeks before those roads are opened up. You know, no one knows what the damage is until uh, the water recedes. And, you know, going on the little bit I have seen, there's a lot of bitumen and whatever else peeled off the roads you know that is sam daniels from daniels pastoral speaking there if you want more information on that story there is an, a, a story up on the abc rural website as we go to where this afternoon no one in australia should be dying from anorexia four corners investigates a hidden health emergency an alien has replaced my daughter and the Australians suffering in silence. I would prefer to tell someone that I'm addicted to meth. The system is broken. Crisis is the only word you can use. Fading away, Australia's secret battle with eating disorders. That's how she's remembered and that's wrong. Streaming now on ABC iView. G'day, I'm Angus Gidley-Baird. I'm the Senior Animal Proteins Analyst with Rabobank and you're listening to The Country Hour. Now let's just take a look at some of the roads that are open across the Territory this afternoon. Now because of all that flooding in the Gulf and the Barclay there, the Barclay Highway does have water over the road in various locations between Three Ways and the Queensland border, so please drive carefully, Uh, but you can't go any further than the Queensland border. Queensland roads have closed the Barclay Highway at that border because of the flooding uh, and the road is also closed in between Camelwheel and Mount Isa. So if you were planning to drive to Queensland, uh, keep an eye on the NT Roads Report website to find out if that opens later today. At the Victoria Highway, it is still open, but the advice is to drive with caution because there is potholes along various locations along the road in between the Buntine intersection and the WA border. And the Roper, according to the 
NT Roads web Report website is still closed at the Stewart Highway intersection. Fourteen to one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Uh, coming up next, we're going to get an update on the Darwin Shiplift. This is the $500 million project to build a shiplift in Darwin. Uh, the contractor who was supposed to build it, it went into administration late last year, but it's found a new buyer. We'll find out what that means for the project after John Farnham. Farnham there with Talk of the Town on the Country Hour on ABC right across the Territory. We're also available via the podcast, the ABC Listen app and Channel 25 on your telly. Thanks for joining me, Dan Fitzgerald, this afternoon. Well, in December last year, doubts about the future of the Darwin shiplift emerged after the construction firm contracted to build it went into administration. Now, the Perth-based builder Clough has been bought by an Italian company called WeBuild, and the NT government is assessing its suitability to continue with that shiplift contract. The cost of this shiplift, of course, has continued to climb since it was first announced, with the project expected to cost $515 million. It's around $100 million more than first flag flagged. Uh, Louise McCormack is the NT's infrastructure commissioner. Uh, she says the cost blowout is a problem the construction industry around the country is facing. So it's nothing new to construction that's right across the country, really. Um, you'll see other projects that have had the same issues, but prices of steel, concrete and, and labour as well, with all the inflation um, prices that are happening, uh, construction is not exempt from that, and we're having to absorb those costs um, just like everyone else is at the moment. Okay, so the major contractor for the project, the Perth-based construction firm Clough, Will, well, which was designing and building the shiplift in a joint venture partnership with BMD, went into voluntary administration in December last year. How has that impacted the project? So it definitely has. It's definitely delayed the timelines. Uh, so what we've done to try and bring it back into the timeline that we need is directly engage their designer WGA, um, and we did that, I think, last week was when the announcement came through. Um, but while we're going to undertake that design, whilst we undertake our due diligence on Clough and their new uh, parent company, WeBuild, and uh, we're quite happy that WeBuild has bought Clough because they're one of the world's biggest construction firms. So it puts quite a lot of backing behind the Shiplift project. Uh, but we're currently undertaking that due diligence with their new parent company. WeBuild, is that a Chinese-backed company? No, it's an Italian company, actually, so we may end up getting some buying power for shiplift components that are uh, European-based because uh, they're not made in Australia. They're generally made in Europe, so we're hoping that's a positive for the project as well. Uh, as we were saying, the project has blown out its budget from $400 million to $515 million, and that is not particularly uh, unusual, those kind of cost blowouts with the inflation that we're seeing right across the country. Will you rule out any further increase in the costs? Is this about it? Um, we're hoping to maintain it within those costs and, and the opportunity we have right now is that we've taken the designers on, on board right now 
Um, and the more design you can do, the less risk in the project, which reduces cost. So we're doing everything we can to keep it within that budget. But obviously, we haven't haven't even turned a sod yet. So I can't promise that, but we'll do everything we can to make sure it's within budget. What do we know about WeBuild, the Italian company that's bought cloth? Has due diligence been done there to allow them to be involved in the shiplift? Yes, so that's what we're undertaking right now. So we have um, advisors on board with Minter Ellison and EY that undertake both legal and financial checks on WeBuild. Um, But we do know just from even if you Google search them, uh, you can see that they're quite a large international company. They're doing lots of uh, multi-billion dollar projects right across the world. Um, But the financial backing that that gives the project is of um, comfort to date, uh, but we do need to undertake those checks before we fully engage with Clough. NT Infrastructure Commissioner Louise McCormack speaking there to Adam Steer on ABC Radio earlier today. It is six minutes to one. Let's head to France now, where a delegation of Australian ag representatives are touring the country and meeting with farmers, industry bodies and government ministers to help build and promote trade partnerships between the nations. The delegation includes representatives from the National Farmers Federation and industry bodies for livestock, grains and horticulture. And among them is our very own NT Farmers Regional Director, Simone Cameron. Max Rowley gave her a call over there in France to find out what she's been up to. We started our week at the Paris International Agricultural Show, which is equivalent to, a, say, a Royal Easter show in Australia. However, just purely agricultural production, no, no sideshow alleys. So it's all about educating and engaging uh, the French uh, as well as other neighbouring countries who come in to see the show. Uh, we then moved on into out into the rural areas beyond Paris, um, and we visited. Uh, Places where they grow sugar beet, which is equivalent, you know, sugar cane, sugar beet um, for sugar. We've also visited uh, many dairies and beef producers, which um, at this time of year, a lot of their cattle are inside in barns. Uh, we've also been to poultry farms. We've been to a piggery. Uh, we've been to uh, a dairy farm that has a methane biodigester, so it produces enough electricity to power uh, 150 homes in the village. Uh, we've been to uh, some um, artificial insemination or genetic uh, research facilities that are involved in making sure that the genetics behind their, some of the, the breeding in their animal production in, in the France is, is as best as it can be. They're very, very keen on, on making sure that the genetics line of some of the breeds they have in France is, 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 world, is world-breaking. Uh, there's been many other different things that we've done. We've been to a vineyard. We've obviously uh, been to um, travelled within the rural areas around Paris and, and beyond. So it's been quite amazing. Wow, what a selection of, uh, of places that you've been to already. And what are the, some of the key conversations that farmers are having in France then? Uh, the key conversations would be predominantly around making sure that we are really, they're very concerned about making sure that they are um, at, at the front edge of, of land management practices and, 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 and looking after the land that they, that they operate. Um, they make sure that they are, you know, a lot of the production over here, uh, there is quite a significant number that are organic in their, in their principles and obviously to understanding and appreciating like we all experience now 
the the uh, price of inputs into the production system is not going down, it's going up at a rapid rate. And so how can we best look to um, continue their, their enterprises in such a way that they can minimise some of those input costs and become more circular um, and have a self-sufficient operation on their farm? And from a territory perspective, Simone, I don't think that we do a whole lot of trade, at least from the territory between here and in France or Europe. So why is it important for you or for a territory representative to be over there? Absolutely. Look, it's all about, um, obviously, you know, I, 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 I admire and I think that we are very, very fortunate in our country to have such a, an amazing representative body in the National Farmers Federation. And it's extremely important. What Basically, what we have is the recognition um, from the NSF around the value and the commitment and the contribution to the ag industry that the Northern Territory does have alongside of other states and jurisdictions in Australia. So it's an extremely um, important uh, opportunity for us to be represented in that in that national and international um, platform. And um, they are, you know, the NFF are doing a phenomenal job at uh, bringing these relations to a world stage. And it's really quite an honour to actually be included in that um, in those conversations. So uh, that's. You know, ultimately, it's about it's about being inclusive, and it's about sharing. Everyone has a story to bring, and knowledge, and and opportunities to bring to the table. So that's really exciting that we were included in this event. And it sounds like it's been a jam-packed first week for you, Simone. What's what's next for the trip? It has been a jam-packed. Um, we've 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 got a couple of days to go. Um, we're heading off to a biogas regulator and and producing site today, which obviously that that biogas is then used to turn into electricity. Um, And then tomorrow is a really, really very important day where we meet uh, together at the Ministry of Agriculture and we're meeting a number of different ministers and delegates who are involved at that high-end level of agriculture in France to discuss all things agriculture and and to really um, further those conversations that we've had over the last week around how there are commonalities and how our, you know, international partnerships can can really strengthen agriculture on a world stage and how that how that looks. Simone Cameron, she is an NT Farmers Regional Director based in Catherine, speaking to Max Rowley there from France, where she's on a trip. And it is coming up to the one o'clock news. Up after news, we'll be speaking with the Weather Bureau. Speak to you in five minutes. I'm Cameron Berryman from Wild Barra Fisheries. We've got vessels fishing all over the northern waters bringing in wild-caught barramundi. You're listening to The Country Hour. G'day there, Dan Fitzgerald is my name. Thanks for joining me. Coming up soon, you're going to hear from the NT Seafood Council. An important barramundi and mud crabbing fishing area will continue to remain off-limits for commercial fishers after some negotiations between the NT government and traditional owners. I'll tell you more about that soon. And we will pay tribute to a mango grower from the Darwin rural area who is being laid to rest in Darwin today, in Quinn. The farmer at his core, but he was a man that always had a pretty big vision whenever he looked at any project that he was thinking about tackling. You know, he'd scratch back a bit of dirt and you could already see 10,000, 100,000 mango trees reaching to the horizon. 
Yeah, paying tribute to Ian Quinn on the Country Hour today. Right now, though, let's head to the Weather Bureau where we've got Sally Cutter on deck. Uh, Sally, uh, let's start with uh, the rain over the weekend. Was there, is there much to talk about? Oh, the biggest total was at CSIRO Berrima with 33 millimetres. So that possibly could have been out of the storm that formed up through there yesterday afternoon. Next best is the Thorax Cemetery with 13. And then Bing Bong Port down in MacArthur River, 10 millimetres. The Port Keats did a, to, gave, gave them a good run to get a medal with 9 millimetres at the airport there. Charles Point at 8 millimetres, sorry, 9 millimetres at what 8 millimetres at Charles Point, Nucky's Lagoon. The MacArthur River airstrip, yeah, it's yeah. There hasn't been much rain, and particularly when you compare it to what we have had, it's significantly eased off. Yeah, and it was uh, felt like it was quite warm over the weekend. Um, what's happened to all the rain, Sally? Oh, uh, we had some dry air. Actually, courtesy of the low that's caused all the issues. Uh, up on the western flanks of these systems, you tend to get some drier air being brought in. And that's what happened over the weekend. Some drier air came in and just really quietened everything down. The moisture is now coming back. We've got showers currently over the Arnhem and Carpentaria districts. And we'll gradually see those extend into the daily district over the next 24 hours. To Wednesday, looks like it might be the most likely day to see activity, but we're really going to be seeing some build-up like conditions. So it's the after, predominantly afternoon showers and storms in the northern half. And they, whilst so we might see standard wet season type totals, they're going to be isolated. So there's nothing like what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. But we may still see, so the creek may still come up, but it's going to be more localised than some big areas of rain right across the catchment causing those really big river rises. So hopefully everything can drain away and the roads can start drying out. Mm, yes, and we've had a question here on the text line, 0487991057. This one comes from Dave in Palmo. He asks, uh, how is the MJO looking? Is it on its way back anytime soon? Uh, it, it is certainly on its way back. This, the MJO sort of just circles the globe continuously. The, currently, the active weather is out over the South America. We do see uh, another pulse coming eastwards, but uh, it's going to be a little way out. It's, uh, the, the runs we've got go through to, to the first week, the 9th of April, and it's just starting to reach Indonesia. So it's, we've, got, we've got time for another pulse to come around before the end of the wet season and before the influence tends moves a bit further north. So it's, but it, it, at the moment it's out over South America. Yeah, okay. And um, for those in the Barclay in Central Australia today, Sally, how are conditions? Uh, sunny. The hopefully that's going to again allow those roads to dry out. Those that aren't underwater, the with the flooding or the the rivers, the Georgina, there's this this warning warnings over the other side of the border, but we're just seeing them to they're just going to just get to get out of the system so without any further rainfall until there may be something late in, in the weekend 
but so we're going to have clear skies with, or maybe a bit of cloud, but no, not expecting little of any rain. So that's not going to be adding to the water that's already on the ground. And hopefully, when if we do see some showers and storms, they're going to be very isolated and therefore just very localised impacts rather than to broad scale impacts across the catchment. Okay. Uh, anything else we need to know, Sally? No, that's probably about it. Just to keep an ear out for the storms because we haven't seen any for a while and so we are back to build up conditions and just remember that sort of you, sort of if there's, sort of you've got to be, or we don't warn for lightning but the thunderstorms do have lightning associated with them and we'll just be keeping the standard eye on them for sort of any gustiness that's going to come out of them or any, they should be moving so heavy rain shouldn't be quite such an issue but yeah, still keeping an eye on them. Okay, thanks a lot for the update Sally. That's okay. That is Sally Cutter there at the Weather Bureau. You're tuned into the Country Hour. It is 11 minutes past one. Hi, I'm Jake Stringer. I'm the manager of Kidman Spring Station, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Well, the Mini Mini and Merganella systems out to the northwest northeast of Darwin, apologies, will remain off limits for fish oats following negotiations between the NT government and traditional owners. Those two parties had been talking about allowing commercial fishing vessels to access the area, which is the one of the closest fishing grounds for Barramundi to Darwin. Um, but yeah, after negotiations have broken down, uh, fishers continue to not be able to access that area spoke about this with the NT Seafood Council's Catherine Winchester. Yeah, so at the start of the Barramundi fishing season, or the start of this year, we were of the understanding that the Northern Territory Government um, were to um, putting an offer on the table for traditional owners in the many, many Merganella region um, for five businesses to continue to operate um, within their um, waters, which is within the Barramundi and the mud crab uh, fishery. And uh, so when I spoke to um, Country Hour in February, all fingers and toes were crossed that those discussions would be positive so that a short-term solution um, to keep those businesses operating in the area could be reached as we had longer-term discussions about what does access look like in the um, area going forward. And so what has been the outcome of those discussions? Yeah, so the Northern Territory Government and Northern Land Council um, uh, convened a consultation with the traditional owners um, the sort of the first week of March and last week we got the uh, news, uh, the verbal updates and, and briefings from both the Land Council and the Northern Territory Government that um, those negotiations failed to reach a successful result um, and as a, as a result those businesses can now not access those waters. Um, and are in a state of shock, to be honest, um, as to what they do next. So, yeah, at the moment, you said there's about five businesses um, who would normally access the Mini Mini and Merganella areas for fishing. Uh, why can't they just um, go somewhere else to another fishing ground? Yeah, so the reason why it was an offer for five businesses, it was five businesses that used that area, um, either 100% of their fishing operations or the vast majority of um, some of those operations, their boats um, are set up only for that area and the boats wouldn't be able to head to other areas around the coastline just due to the age and the nature of those boats. 
And for the mud crab fishery in particular, um, you know, mud crabbers are spread out all along the coastline to simply put um, some further licenses on top of areas that are already being commercially fished is um, not what the industry wants to do from a stock sustainability perspective, but also to make sure that people aren't fishing on top of each other on key grounds. So, you know, it's, it's not as simple as just those crabbers can go move to another area. They've been established in these areas. It's the only areas they've fished for the last 20 years. And there's that stability amongst the mud crab fishery as to um, sort of gentlemen's agreements, I guess, as to who fishes where to make sure that it's all balanced and that everyone's got good operations. I guess it sounds like the traditional owners just don't want commercial fishing in that region. Is that a fair take? Uh, look, we want to understand better why the answer was no. Um, it's really difficult when you're not there as part of those discussions. Um, and so we need to learn uh, from this experience uh, what the traditional owners are looking for, what what would they want to make it um, to allow those commercial fishers into the area um, and whether or not they would. Um, so further discussions are going to need to be had. It's a really crucial area for both the barramundi and the mud crab um, fishery and we haven't yet got that understanding as to why the answer was no, um, which is really disappointing because for the last 14 years of negotiations, you know, all parties have been trying their best to have uh, a common goal of of not impacting business businesses so that um, whatever the solutions are going forward, you still have a strong and viable seafood industry. And so to have this area closed at such short notice is, is quite a shock. And it's, it's really, um, yeah, <laughs> we're very concerned for those fishers that were in the area, but um, the broader ramifications for both of those fisheries going forward with regards to, um, you know, just the availability of, of bar and mud crab to the markets, but more so, more so having viable businesses that can be certain in access to their fishing grounds. Yeah, those areas, the Mini Mini and Merganella, as you said, have been closed since the start of the barra season about six weeks ago. How are those businesses going? Yeah, so for the Barramundi fishery, it's a nine-month fishery. So they knew that the consultations, they had hoped the consultations would occur in early February and they were hoping for, for a positive outcome. Um, they've lost a month of um, their potential income and were, were patiently waiting and, um, you know, getting ready to, to go into that area post-successful negotiations, which hasn't occurred. Um, those operators that can't fish anywhere else uh, you know, the areas that are left within the region uh, are not enough for a viable fishing operation. So um, they are severely impacted. For the mud crab fishery um, operations in that area, we typically see um, to start around now in March. Uh, and again, those businesses are now trying to figure out where they can go um, without crowding other fishers. If there is anywhere else that they can actually go is, is what they're trying to figure out. Uh, that region is where Darwin gets most of. Uh, that region is traditionally where Darwin gets most of its fresh barra, um, barra that's not not frozen. Um, in the six weeks that uh, the season's been going, have you had any feedback from wholesalers or consumers about not getting fresh barra from that region? Uh, no, we haven't. Um, but to be fair, we haven't actually been going out. We've been. Um uh, to, to ask that question, to lose that area and the amount of tonnage uh, that it has traditionally brought in, um, we will start to see those impacts. Um, so whilst there's other areas, um, I guess if you go west of Darwin, that might be a little bit close 
that some operators could bring uh, fresh barra back. Possibly there's been a small amount in the market, um, but certainly those impacts uh, are going to be noticed uh, further and further we get into the fishing season. Uh, your media release you put out this morning urges the NT government to take immediate action. What would you like to see done? Whatever they can do to help these businesses that are hurting right now, um, we are trying to connect them with financial counselling services, um, but also uh, to hear from government what packages, uh, what business support programs might they be able to put in place to help those businesses now. They've got bills to pay. They're 100% reliant on this area um, for their income. How do we help them navigate through that? It's not good enough to just say, oh, well, that area is closed, too bad, you're on your own. Um, so we will have further discussions with government to see what programs either already exist or what can be done for those operators to help help them. But it's it's needed urgently. Catherine Winchester is the Chief Executive of the NT Seafood Council. Now, we have approached the Minister for Fisheries, Paul Kirby, uh, for a response. If his office gets back to us, uh, we'll, we'll share that response with you, hopefully on tomorrow's Country Hour. It is 20 minutes past one. Uh, still to come, we are going to pay tribute to mango grower Ian Quinn, who is being farewelled in a funeral in Darwin today. First up, uh, Bitter Troy Cassadaly and Conan, Colin Buchanan. Casadale and Colin Buchanan there with Big River Country. It is 23 minutes past one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. A long-time mango farmer from Acacia Hills is being farewelled in Darwin this afternoon. Ian Quinn passed away at the age of 77. He was well known throughout the NT ag sector for growing mangoes alongside his partner too. I spoke with his son Paul Quinn to hear how Ian made his way from WA's wheat belt to Darwin's rural area. My dad was a pioneer. He was a farmer at his core, but he was a man that always had a, a pretty um, a pretty big vision whenever he looked at any project that he was uh, thinking about tackling. You know, he'd scratch back a bit of dirt and he could already see 10,000, 100,000 mango trees reaching to the horizon. And um, he had that kind of genuine soul-to-the-earth sort of spirit that meant that whatever he decided to tackle... Um, it just he just knew that it took a lot of hard work and time uh, and he'd be able to get there. So, um, you know, a good visionary farmer from that perspective. And can you tell us how we got into growing mangoes? Yeah, um, so originally he was a, Ian was, a, originally Ian was a wheat farmer uh, in Western Australia many, many moons ago, 50 odd years ago. Um, and he got on a on a deal with the uh, Australian Wheat Board is doing had an arrangement in Libya to teach um, Arabs how to farm with uh, using Australian dry uh, dry cropping farming techniques. Uh, and he spent a lot of time over in the middle Middle East and and, um, and ostensibly farming, you know, and teaching farming practices. But then um, building up trade based around farm machinery and, and equipment and and personnel and labour and you know farm leads and that sort of thing. So he built up a, a quite a, um, a an organisation with he and a few of his mates over time. Um, and when they decided that I think that the Middle East was getting a bit hairy, um, maybe not, you know not as safe as it had been for them in the past, then they um, he looked at, at doing a few other things. 
and in his style, you know, he always kind of, he was a pioneer, so he always tried something kind of left of centre. For a minute there, it was rabbit farming, and when his rabbits didn't populate as fast as he, as he would have liked, and when the, the ass sort of fell out of the rabbit, the pet food market, I think at the time, he looked at um, at alternatives. And I think, again, he really wanted to get back to the land after doing some, you know, sort of more business-oriented things. Um, and he'd met his, his, uh, his now wife, too, over in Thailand. And he, he applied for a role with the NT government and, um, you know, thinking that perhaps he could contribute something back by way of his learnings in, in, um, in horticulture and, and starting up new ventures especially. And so um, he landed up here and, and the place that he rented, Ian 2 rented out at Howard Springs, had a few mango trees in, in the back of the block. And, um, and they realised that, that they were prolific and they were, they were amazing fruiters and, and it was a new sort of experience for him. He hadn't really been into mangoes or, or knowing much about them at all. And they picked those those few trees and sold them at the markets and gradually developed an appetite for what what's become you know probably one of the top ends you know largest you know um, concurrently planted operations you know that you see in the mango sort of game now. As you said, he was involved in a lot of different agricultural projects over the years. What did he love about farming? I think. So he he got into farming really young, like straight in high school, really. Like he, he decided pretty early, I think looking at his own dad, kind of um, struggling through a, you know, he was an accountant, struggling through a, a salary man's job, just waiting to retire. And dad looked at at, um, at his own father and sort of thought, gee, you're, you're just unhappy and, and what are you doing? Just trudging through this existence and waiting to, to, to retire. So then, you know, to do nothing sort of effectively and and I think he always had a very adventurous spirit, my dad. So he um he struck out from a very young age, um, pretty much as far as he could go from from his um his home in, in Swanbourne in Perth, Western Australia and um he went to Muresk Ag College but then his first job right out of out of that um you know, that training school there was up in the Ord River, right at the top of Western Australia, working on the Ord River Regeneration Project. And um, I think, you know, at his heart, he's a frontiersman as well. So he really, he really likes to be on the fringe of um, of civilization and where things are operating. And I think probably mostly because it affords him the the freedom to do things exactly how he wants to be able to do them, um, without necessarily, you know, a bunch of other people breathing down his neck. Paul Quinn, he's a son of Ian Quinn, whose funeral is being held in Darwin today. And from all of us here at the country, we send our condolences to Ian's partner too and the Quinn family. We've had a lot of reporters go out to the farm there in Acacia Hills over the years and they've always welcomed the country hour into their home. So we appreciate them for that. That's about all we have time for on the Country Hour today. Uh, if you missed the start of the show, uh, we were talking about flooding in the Gulf of Carpentaria. Our stock losses are expected. It's not sure how big they will be at this stage, um, but we heard from a chopper pilot who's been doing flying around, and this is what he told us. Catastrophic losses, cattle swimming around up to, uh, for days on end here, so the image just can't get to them all. Um, yeah, the worst of it's where they're... We're thousands are trying to get on one little 
dam square or up into a turkey's nest and they're just smothering each other and yeah, they're dying all underneath. They're just a pile of cattle. Yeah. Yeah, some pretty uh, sad scenes there. That is chopper pilot Jack Clark. If you want to read more about that story, there's an online story up on the ABC Rural website this afternoon. That's it for the show today. I'll speak to you tomorrow.